But I was still fishing that when I was a young kid. But as we grew older, those fish started dying, started going away because of that dam. Now that I what I know now is because of that dam. That has a direct impact on the, my ability to practice my culture. Just this this history of land theft, land seizure, for the development of these hydro projects to facilitate the growth of urban areas downstream, you know, really on the backs of Indigenous peoples. Native people didn't just lay down and die in California, they actively fought back and then also actively went underground with ceremonies and traditions that are passed down towards generations to people like me now. The fishery's gonna keep on falling off the way it is. There's not much hope. And according to our ideology, when the salmon quit coming back, that's the end of the world. And I think it's time for non-Native people to listen to us for a change. Welcome to Challenging Colonialism, a podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of Indigenous California. An important note from the start, the producers are two white male educator academics, and these are not our stories. This podcast will center Native voices, and our intention is to highlight the significant work being done by Indigenous communities to challenge ongoing colonialism and to broadcast information about the resistance and resilience of Indigenous California in the past, the present, and the future. A final note before we begin, this podcast may contain graphic descriptions of slavery, genocide, and sexual violence. Welcome to Challenging Colonialism, Episode 3, Weapons of Mass Destruction, Dams, and Colonization. Yeah. Hey, um, my name is Brittany Arona. I am a Hoopa Valley tribal member and a PhD candidate in Native American Studies and Human Rights at UC Davis. I focus mainly on the Klamath River dams up on the border of Oregon um, and California. The dams um, encompass both the California side and then the Oregon side of the um, the Klamath River Basin. So the Klamath River Basin is often described as a uh, river turned upside down. So it starts at the Upper Klamath Lake, a fairly arid region that has now been used for agriculture. So you see a lot of alf alfalfa farming, uh, ranching, um, you know, that that type of activity that occurs there. And then um, the arid part changes down into the lower Klamath Basin, um, which supports my tribe, the Hoopa Valley, as well as um, related tribes, the Yurok, Kruk, Shasta um, peoples. The Hoopa Valley tribe is along the Trinity River, which is the largest tributary of the Klamath, um, and also faces diversions both from the southern lower port portion, the South Fork of the Trinity, uh, through the Lewiston Dam that was built in 1962 to feed into the Central Valley Project that irrigates the Central Valley um, of California, the agricultural center of the state. But we really, really depend on the river for not only physical sustenance, so we depend on salmon runs that occur. There's eel, lamb, well, lamprey are eel, but uh, trout, 
different fishery species that we maintain relationships with, but we also do our ceremonies on the water. So we just finished our world renewal uh, ceremonies um, that occur every two years in the Hoopa Valley. And some of those dances take place literally on the water. So we depend on this water to maintain our ceremonial and cultural life. Ayuki Hutkich, Mkaka. Hello, how are you? My name's Mkaka. My Kaduk name's Mkaka. And my real name, or my surname, is uh, Ronald Raymond Reed Sr. Um, today I'm coming to you from uh, Kadumin, the center of the world. And this is where I'm the cultural caretaker, the Kaduk cultural caretaker of the ceremonial grounds here. And um, it's an inherent responsibility of mine and my family that has that stretches back to time immemorial. Today, um, I'm representing the second largest tribe in California, uh, the Kaduk tribe. I'm a Kaduk tribal member. I'm a dip net fisherman, a traditional dip net fisherman at Ishifishi Falls. And I'm a ceremonial leader at the Kaduk World Renewal Ceremonies at Inam. This has uh, been something that was passed down to my grandfather back in the early 1900s. So this is something I've been able to, in the last five years, come back and preside as a ceremonial leader in the same place that my ancestors have. So it's a, it's a really uh, strong place to be at this day and age. I was born in 1962, and Iron Gate Dam was completed in maybe 1965. I might have my, my numbers wrong there. But regardless, it was right about the time I was born, when that habitat for the spring salmon was extinguished up above Iron Gate Dam. And some of my earliest memories growing up was fishing down at Ishifishi Falls, was um, harvesting tanook mushrooms, acorns, and deer in the same location. So these are the same locations that have been passed down through time. Medicine is, is made in connection with the salmon runs. The importance of that feature is the, the physical nutrition that salmon provides for the landscape. I think that's well documented. But I think what is not well documented is the physical or the mental or the spiritual connection that salmon have to humans. We survived on that salmon, and that salmon has, has survived on the basis of our management of the resources, throughout time. Right now, those dams on the Klamath River, that dam, Iron Gate Dam, has put the last straw on the camel's back. That straw on the camel's back has crippled the Chinook fishery population. The spring Chinook, the summer run Chinook, and the fall run Chinook the coho salmon, and I think there are other salmon that also were in the system that are no longer there. And it all has to do with the health of the river. Iron Gate Dam cut off that eight miles of the most prolific spawning and rearing habitat in North America, spring-fed system up there. That was extirpated. That was blocked off. But I was still fishing that when I was a young kid. But as we grew older those fish started, die, started going away because of that dam. Now that I, what I know now is because of that dam. 
And so that has a direct impact on the, my ability to practice my culture. The cultural integrity of the Kudu people is devastated because of those, that dam system. There was over a million fish, Chinook salmon, returning to Klamath River Basin to spawn. And now there's less than 5% of that total, and it is still deemed that it has insignificant impact to the cultural integrity of the Kudu people. That's appalling. The work I did with Dr. Kari Norgard at the time, Whitman College. Now she's at the University of Oregon. My name's Kari Norgard. I'm faculty at University of Oregon on sociology and environmental studies. And I'm a non-native researcher who's been working collaboratively with the Kaduk tribe for about the last 15 years on dam removal policy and forest policy, climate change, things like that. For me personally, I'm a sociologist. When I first started um, working with the tribe, I really thought more in terms of race and racism and how, you know, it was just, I had not understood how much the state of California, the U.S. Forest Service, and the other agencies that are there are interfering, actively interfering with the desire of people to take care of themselves and their ability to do so. And, you know, had very much thought more sort of in historical terms in terms of what's going on. But I also hadn't understood so much, as I said, in terms of settler colonialism, that it's that it's a colonial force that's ongoing. I was thinking about indigenous people's experience more just in terms of race and racism. When the um, dams cut off the salmon runs, essentially that was a very dramatic change in people's diets. And so we used a combination of um, looking at health data. Uh, we did a survey of all tribal members living in ancestral territory, and we did a whole series of interviews with people about um, about the foods that they ate, what they could eat, how much they were still able to get. We asked questions in our survey like, when did your family cease, when did salmon cease to become a significant portion of your diet? And we asked that by decade. And then we asked things like, when did diabetes first appear in your family? When did heart disease first appear in your family? And we asked that by decade. And we saw a very direct correlation where as salmon drops, um, there's a chart, there's a graph showing this, as salmon drops, um, uh, diabetes goes up um, and you know, nearly all families now have someone, in, a member of their family with diabetes. Um, but again, um, you know, five decades ago, that was not the case. But I think if you see for other tribes and other communities, and if you understand those dams in the context of an ongoing force of colonialism in people's lives, it, it would be very powerful to have it removed. Um, and of course, you know, we, we know that salmon are in danger. We know that the single most important thing you can do um, for species, a threatened species, is habitat restoration. You know, one thing that has become more and more clear to me as I started working in there is not just racism, but colonialism and how it is ongoing today and how these dams are basically interfering with a sovereign nation's ability to feed themselves and to manage their resources in the way that they see fit. And the presence of those dams is an everyday reminder, not only in a tangible sense of the fish, blocking the fish, 
but it's a symbolic reminder of that there is the state of California, the state of Oregon, uh, the power company um, are interfering with their ability to exist in their in their livelihoods. So it's a it's a, an indication of genocide and ongoing colonialism. It's a reminder. So I would say uh, on a professional level, for me, understanding that racism and colonialism are happening every day now through the actions of state agencies and companies and that people are actively resisting and creatively resisting. We did some denied access to traditional foods, identifying the fact that the federal government has impacted a race of people or a group of people by our project area. The health, the lifestyle of our people has been devastated. And that's what we proved. So at that point, indigenous science had gained some ground on it's not just a physical patriarchal society resource management process. Now, for the first time, we have the spirit of something in there. Now we have acknowledgement that indigenous people are being affected differently than what the perspective is of that, that bottom line management process, profit. So things I wasn't able to identify was how much money it was impacting the Kaduk people. How would that impact my people in a monetary basis where the society would understand information that allows the public to see the, the public health implications of the lack of management for the Kaduk people? What that denied access to traditional food report did was identify the amount of money that it costs people that have diabetes, that have hypertension, have all these different diseases that are associated with a bad diet. So we're trying to figure this thing out, but how can we do these things when our health is so devastated and people are making money off us being sick? It's really uh, mind-staggering to try to articulate the impacts of not being able to provide salmon for your ceremony. Articulate the impact of not being able to hand people fish that you and your family have handed fish to for since time immemorial. And when things like that happen, it, it has a, a devastating impact on the cultural integrity. But also, what is the mental aspect of all this devastation that was caused by forced assimilation? Forced assimilation... I'm sorry, the Klamath River hydroelectric dam process is, is essentially eco-genocide. The ecology of the river was drastically impacted to a point where those million fish didn't have anywhere to go. The most prolific spawning and rearing habitat in North America was cut off, was severed. And now the dams are supposed to be coming out. I, I say supposed to because I'm not sure if that's ever going to happen. Yeah, but if it doesn't, the fishery is going to keep on falling off the way it is. There's not much hope. And according to our ideology, when the salmon quit coming back, that's the end of the world. There has been a transfer of wealth since contact. They took away our salmon. They took away our, our you know, they took away the timber in search of gold. All these different things had a devastating impact on the integrity of the Kaduk people. And then the dams came in and did the final straw on the camel's back that just really crushed the integrity of the Kaduk people.
Hi, I'm Beth Rose Middleton Manning. I am a faculty member in the Department of Native American Studies at UC Davis within Putwin Homelands. I am Afro-Caribbean and Eastern European, uh, born and raised in Sierra Miwok homelands outside of Jackson and Pioneer, California. Well, dams impact the fishery heavily. So I'm thinking of you know, where my husband's from, Mount Maidu, um, the huge earthen fill dam at Oroville completely stops salmon from going upstream past Oroville Dam. Historically, salmon would have been all the way upstream into the mountains, uh, but initially it actually wasn't the Oroville Dam that stopped their progress, their natural cycle. Great Western Power Company was the power company that initially developed the hydropower dams in the Feather River Canyon and just upstream of the canyon. And those later fell under the ownership of PG&E or Pacific Gas and Electric. So all of those dams completely changed the ecosystem, stopped the migration of various species, including salmon, really changed the, the riverine and aquatic life in that, that whole area. As my friend and uh, Maidu elder Lorena Gorbett often says, you know, it was a whole culture, a whole way of life, songs, stories, uh, ways of being, systems of knowledge that were impacted by the dams. I think you could say that uh, across the board. Also thinking of you know the major impact of Shasta Dam on Winnemuwintu people, and kind of the story goes on with all of these dams throughout the Sierras and the foothills and the Coast Range and in the Central Valley, really impacting homelands and waters, changing uh, subsistence patterns, but far beyond subsistence, just culture, identity, and relationship to place. The whole ecosystem is impacted when a dam is put on the system um, and changes the flow regime and what species are in the river. My name is Craig Tucker. I'm a natural resources policy consultant to the Karuk tribe, and I help coordinate the tribe's efforts to remove the lower four dams on the Klamath River. The dams on the Klamath River were constructed between 1918 and 1962, but four dams that we're trying to remove are exclusively a hydropower project, provide no irrigation deliveries, they provide virtually no flood control benefits, they provide no drinking water deliveries, they're hydropower dams. And they're not good at producing hydropower, which is part of the reason they're being removed. And we're a good case study, I think, for how you campaign on environmental issues in the 21st century. And what I mean is this is happening because tribes are full on leading the charge. And so I would just say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a non-native person, you know, working in Indian country, but my advice to non-Indians who work on these kinds of issues is all environmental issues are social justice issues. So understand that and what that means, and then find ways to be a, an ally uh, and an accomplice to um, tribes and others who really are bearing the burden of the decisions we're making, whether it's dams or power plants or other kinds of pollution. But that's the recipe for success is, is those kinds of diverse coalitions. So for we know for, to get a new license to operate these dams as a hydropower project, it's simply going to cost the company more money to invest in 
upgrading the structures, uh, building fish ladders as would be required under modern environmental laws. It just exceeds the value of the project. So we've been focused on finding a way to, to remove the dams. We believe that this is going to dramatically advance fisheries restoration in the Klamath. It'll give fish access to hundreds of miles of historic spawning habitat, directly improve water quality on the Klamath River, and alleviate the reservoirs that give rise to massive blooms of toxic blue-green algae every summer that's a health problem for both uh, wildlife and humans. The Klamath River has two big problems. Uh, one's the dams. The other is the operation of the Klamath Irrigation Project. It is far upstream from the dams and in some ways unconnected, but you have to understand both to really get the context of this. So the headwaters of the Klamath is um, it's Haman Desert, but there's this giant basin that drains into a complex of wetlands. And this is where Upper Klamath Lake, Lower Klamath Lake, Klamath Wildlife Fuges. And it used to be just this vast wetlands complex. Uh, in the early part of the 20th century, the United States decided to build a giant reclamation project. So they drained wetlands, they turned it into farmland, they plumbed um, the area to be able to move water around. And so today there's about 225,000 acres of farmed land on the Klamath Irrigation Project. There's about 1,400 farm families that farm on the project. These families were granted these lands as part of the Homestead Act. And there were lotteries after World War One and again after World War Two to grant lands to, to the to veterans, but it also displaced Klamath people off of their land. So uh, there were people already living there, the Klamath tribes of Oregon, the Klamath, the Modoc, and, and the Yahuskin Band of Snake River Indians in that area. And so that created a conflict. You know, at the formation of the state, there's this destruction that happens to Native people, this genocide that occurs to Native people at the same time that our lands and waters are being um, dispossessed from us um, and removed from us. Um, so with the construction of water, when, when I'm thinking about water infrastructure, I think of it as a form of um, genocide. Because we see ourselves so closely with the land, we are the land and the land is us. Um, I, I see that as a form of um, genocide against native peoples. And that those environmental policies that continue to the present day are a form of that. There's a tendency with these government actors that control water in the state to look at water policy or environmental policy as being very benign. Like we're trying to do this for everybody and, you know, water for all and everybody needs it and deserves it, which is true. Every, you know, people have a human right to water. Um, but it becomes very different when most of the water is being sent to agricultural purposes that are not necessary in supporting life. When these, the water is being taken and is killing communities. Um, you know, in Yurok country in 2016, 
there was a rash of suicides of young people. Um, and a lot of that was attributed to economic reasons. You know, it's an economically poor place, um, mental health struggles, substance abuse, um, all those things. But people also talked about the death of our rivers as being a contributing thing. So in the river, we talk all, a lot about salmon, but in the lakes up there, there's other fish called, uh, they're suckers, the Lost River and Short-Nosed Sucker, uh, the, the Modoc word being the Tuam and Koptu. Those fish are threatened with extinction. So this is now Warren Buffett's, his empire. We started going to Omaha, Nebraska every year to the Berkshire Hathaway shareholders meeting. And eventually, after a lot of campaigning, a lot of direct action, lawsuits, we got Pacific Core to the bargaining table and in 2010 forged a series of agreements that together would remove dams and balance water use in a way that uh, folks felt were, was equitable. How much water is in the Klamath River is really, in the summertime anyway, is truly a function of how that irrigation project's operated. In 2001, the irrigators had their water curtailed for the first time in the project's history to protect these fish. It led to huge protests. In 2002, we were still in drought, but the federal agencies reversed course and gave water to the farmers. This led to a massive fish kill in the lower Klamath River where about 70,000 adult salmon died before spawning. So when the dam licensing came up, that was kind of the backdrop. And so we used it as an opportunity to not only talk about removing dams and talking to this big corporation about removing dams, we were also trying to figure out a way to balance water use so that farm communities, fishing communities, tribal communities could all survive. And where we are now is we, we're on track to remove dams in 2023. And we're um, in the last steps of the, the process with FERC. We expect a draft EIS in January and a final decision from FERC next summer. So while environmental policy is often talked about as being kind of benign and, and, you know, using numbers and crunching numbers and all these things, it actually contributes to horrific things that occur in our communities. And I think that's a really hard thing for people to understand that are non-Native. Um, I see myself so closely aligned with the water and river systems that when that fish kill occurred this earlier this year, I was very depressed for a very long time and I'm still upset about it. It's very much a part of us. And so when anything happens to land that's bad, it happens to us. It's a violence against us too. And again, that's a very difficult concept, I think, for non-Native people to understand. Um, even when you're thinking about environmentalism, um, it's like, well, we should protect this because nature is great and we go and look at it. And I often find that 
there's not this idea of us being a part of that nature. And for Native people, we are, we're very much a part, like we carry and maintain relationships with land um, that matter beyond what their usefulness is as a resource. Like they're not resources, they're not natural resources. They're actually living beings that have a life that extends beyond the value of them through monetary purposes. So far, you've heard from Ron Reed, Brittany Arona, Beth Rose Middleton Manning, Kari Norgard, and Craig Tucker. These land management departments have tried to keep Native people off their lands through the settler colonial laws about land management and fishing and what is best for the environment. And it's often pushing Native people away from their traditions and, and life ways. That weapon of mass destruction, when they've taken out the mountains, they've taken out the water supplies, they've changed all of the freshwater systems under those lakes. And so that's kind of why I say, you know, it is a weapon of mass destruction. Native people didn't just lay down and die in California, they actively fought back and then also actively went underground with ceremonies and traditions that are passed down towards generations to people like me now. We've been um, fighting back against settler colonialism for a very long time. Welcome to part two, a history of resistance. Ayuki Hutkich, Mkaka. Hello, how are you? My name's Mkaka, my cut name's Mkaka. My surname is uh, Ronald Raymond Reed Sr. I'm a Kuduk tribal member. The dam removal process is necessary, but it doesn't stop there. And it doesn't stop with we start managing the forest properly neither. But we have to start allowing the people to understand what was actually erased by America. Indigenous science is here to stay. We were not supposed to be here. We're supposed to be extinct. But our world ideology allows us to exist in the most adverse conditions because this is the first time we've been in these positions. We've been through pandemics. We've been through the ice age. We've been through extreme drought. Why do you think all of our methodology of management is conservative? Never take more than you need. So I think it's up to leadership on both sides of the aisle, Western science and indigenous science, to bring the models, the economics, the social models to the table so we can depict what is the best thing for life here on this planet. It's very simple, but Western science makes it very complex. So take out those dams, cultural fires, re-educate our community on fire ecology, and start working with nature. I think society would be a lot better in the comfortable basin than it is right now. I'm uh, Colleen Sisk and I'm the chief of the Winnemum-Wintu tribe, and our homeland is off of the McLeod uh, watershed area on Mount Shasta, and we kind of watch all the salmon all the way to the ocean. There is a movement in the world right now about indigenous knowledge and allowing the indigenous knowledge to uh, step up from the academic knowledge and start 
assisting because I'm not a fish biologist. But you know what? My dad and everybody grew up on the river. We have hundreds of years of how that was, how that it should be, how the fish move, stories of, of how fish get to one place to another, how they relate to the river. And when they go there, everything uh, is better. The water is better. The trees are better. The soil is better. The birds are better. And for us, you know, they're a keystone animal that rivers have to have. And if people could realize that we're not just talking about water for salmon, but these salmon actually clean the riverbeds. I mean, they dig nests that go down like a foot and a half, and they turn those rocks over. And when they turn those rocks over, the river gets clean. The water systems between the groundwater and the river, the surface water, can work. If it gets plugged up, I mean, you got to think of your drain. When it gets plugged up, it just don't function. That's what happens to rivers without salmon. And I don't think enough people realize that we're not just talking about salmon to eat. We're talking about salmon for good water, clean water, drinkable water. And if if more if we could educate more people to, you know, start thinking about these and go and investigate some other things, but help us. Help us to do this. Uh, my people lived there. My dad lived there. My grandma and everybody, all my relatives lived on that river that was going to be flooded. And so for us, it is like ground zero. They've they've um, wiped us out. You know, they've taken everything that that we had, lost everything. And for us, nothing was replaced. And I think some people can identify with that who are still waiting for FEMA to do something, to to assist, you know, and so that weapon of mass destruction is more than just people issues, but it is uh, issues of nature. When they've taken out the mountains, they've taken out the water supplies, they've changed all of the freshwater systems under those lakes. And so that's kind of why I say you know, it is a weapon of mass destruction. And most people don't really know what mass destruction really is. You know, the the thing that I see the most, when the water recedes and you see that all the clear cutting that happened for the way of the dam, which, you know, now they find is like maybe not have been the best idea to do, but they uh, clear cut huge groves of oak trees as well as, you know, the conifers, they clear-cut a whole hydrology system that provided and supplied water throughout the year. You know, people didn't really understand the hydrology system that works from roots of trees, and instead they just cut those trees down, killing all the roots and storing water on top of, you know, a perfectly uh, good water system. And they changed, you know, they changed all of the uh, habitat for fish, birds, um, four-legged animals that would take care of those places and are our water keepers, like the beavers 
like the wolves. They changed all of that in those flooded areas. But the other thing I think, you know, for Shasta, the Sacramento River was heavily mined. And people don't realize that those mines, like the copper smelter mines, were just left standing. They weren't capped. They just flooded them. And so those mines continued to bleed into the lake, the lake water. So you have a lot of mercury and, you know, other toxins that are gathering up at the bottom of these, at least Lake Shasta. And so it's like, okay, so you just want to build it higher and let some people later down the road have to figure out how do you neutralize all that toxic waste that you know, could be let out of the dam by an earthquake. You know, it sits on a fault line. It's like it's probably the worst place to have a dam. So dams are really an instrument of colonialism and settlement. Um, the Bureau of Reclamation, the first director, Francis Newlands, was known to be a white supremacist and to advocate for repopulating the West with what he called a desirable class of people. And in order to facilitate that repopulation, uh, he needed to, to dam uh, rivers and, and reallocate flows to facilitate agricultural development. The Klamath tribes are terminated at the height of the development and construction of uh, water infrastructure on the Klamath. And so they lose a lot of their land rights at a time when that tribe is actually very much thriving. Um, and the government decides that they're actually not acting like Indians anymore, or they're not able to take care of their lands anymore. And so you see all of these assaults on indigenous sovereignty that occur through also determining that the Klamath reservation is abandoned which opens up the ability for uh, the government to enact non-native fishing rights onto the Klamath Basin. So in 1902, uh, with the passage of the reclamation, pro the federal reclamation project, you get the construction of these dams um, between the 19, early 1900s into the 1960s. Um, but the Klamath River dams changed the way in which um, salmon interact with the water, the ways in which Native people can interact with the water, both the Klamath tribes up in the upper basin and then lower basin tribes, such as the Hupa-Yurak-Kruk and Shasta peoples. So dams cut off salmon runs. These dams are also constructed for hydroelectric and diversion purposes, um, but they've really gone past their living point so PG&E owns a project called the Potter Valley Project. It's two, it's one big dam, one small dam with a diversion. They divert, the, the project was built to divert water from the eel to the Russian. And in so doing, the water goes through a powerhouse. It is an old project. The powerhouse does not, it's another one where the power project doesn't really make economic sense anymore. So PG&E announced plans that it was going to orphan the project, which means, hey, if anybody else wants it, step right up. And if no one steps right up, then FERC would then direct
direct PG&E to put together a surrender plan and application. And surrender, you don't really know what you're going to get out of that, right? It doesn't necessarily mean removing all the dams and putting everything the way you found it. It could mean that, but you just don't know until you go through the process. So Russian River interests are really hooked on the water. So they've been getting this significant diversion of 60,000 acre feet or more of water from the eel to the Russian. And of course, the Russian has a lot of water users, um, both municipal water users as well as agricultural water users. So Humboldt County, Mendocino County, Sonoma Water Agency, Caltrout, and the Round Valley Indian Tribe came up with a plan to build a partnership, we call it the Two Basin Partnership, to try and take over that project. And in taking it over, we would remove the biggest dam. We would <clears throat> make changes to the point of diversion to be fish friendly and still move water from the eel to the Russian in the winter when there's an abundance of water in the eel. So we've been working on that but we're really we've struggled to raise the kind of capital you need. It's, it, we, we think it cost about eighteen million dollars to do all studies necessary to put together a license application, and then we have to we would have to figure out a entity to actually take the project and manage it into perpetuity. So we're also really interested in the Eel River dam removal efforts that are going on um, up there to protect the Eel River, which actually stopped running this year, had a period of time where it stopped running, which is really scary um, when a river stops running. Um, and it speaks to the in detrimental environmental impacts that these dams and water reclamation policy has um, to these Northern California rivers. And so we're really invested in Northern California rivers that so we're trying to reach more down to the Bay Area and the Bay Delta region um, because most of Northern California water is diverted to Southern California um, via the aqueduct system. I think something that's really important when we're talking about um, dam construction and water infrastructure and reclamation in California specifically is that we don't really go back into the start of colonization and how that impacts um, Native people through like these negative environmental actions that are occurring at the beginning of colonization. So if you're looking at the California gold rush period, the Hoopa Valley, I focus a lot on Hoopa because I am Hoopa, but the Hoopa Valley isn't necessarily colonized until the 1850s. Um, so we, we are a relatively late period of colonization in the state of California. You see a lot of gold mining activities that create mercury in the water that we're still dealing with on top of the genocide that is occurring in the state. The first legislature passes this law that proves the genocide and indentured servitude of Indian people through militias. So you're seeing, um, just incredible acts of violence, not just only through like these laws and policies um, that are enacted in the first California legislature at the beginning of statehood, 
but also through the physical violence that Native people are enduring at the height of um, the period during and after the California Gold Rush. So the American period. So it's an incredibly violent time uh, for Native people. But during this first legislature, this is also when they're beginning to talk about water development in the state. So it's not just about gold during this period, it's also about building California as an agricultural place. So I say all of that because I think it's really important to understand that the basis of land dispossession in California starts very, very early. But Native people are continuously fighting back against that, whether that means they're um, up in Northwestern California, they're fighting back against these militias. Native people didn't just lay down and die in California, they actively fought back. And then also actively went underground with ceremonies and traditions that are passed down towards generations to people like me now. But in 2002, there is a devastating um, fish kill on the Klamath River Basin, and it kills upwards to 80,000 mature Chinook-Coho salmon. And so mature salmon are very big. You can see them, they've lived for a very long time. Um, they come, they, salmon are really amazing species, like every salmon that is in a river is connected to that river very strongly. Um, they go back to the rivers that they spawn from. So we, as Hupa, Yurok, and Kruk peoples, maintain very strong ties to those salmon. Um, we see them as relatives. Like their importance is in that we take care of them and they take care of us. So at the very core of it, um, taking care of our lands and waters is essential to being Hupa, Yurok, and Kruk people. Like we have to do, we have to do it. Like even if I wasn't an academic, I think I would still be doing this type of work because it really matters to me. Um, but in 2002, there's this um, salmon die-off and it happens actually during the Yurok World Renewal Ceremonies, which is especially devastating. So the World Renewal Ceremonies, um, each tribe puts on their own ceremonies. And um, we believe in doing that, we're remaking the world, not only for us, but for everybody else. So remaking the world and providing all the things that we all need to survive. And so when that happens during the Iraq ceremonies, it's especially devastating for tribes because it's a time of renewal and ceremonial importance. Um, and so almost immediately after the fish kill occurs and it occurs um, for a variety of reasons, in 2001, there was a drought um, and there wasn't enough water to go around. And initially the United States government and the Department of the Interior decided to send the water to Coho and Chinook salmon on the lower Klamath. And then there's a period of civil disobedience from farmers and community, white community members up on the Klamath Falls and they destroy some irrigation uh, dikes and start doing these protests. And then the Department of the Interior changes their mind, sends water up into the Klamath, um, the upper Klamath for irrigation. And then that's when the fish kill occurs. And it's really devastating. To, I was a teenager when it, it occurred, but it's really devastating to remember when that happened because the whole community came together and mourned it. It's like seeing your relatives on the side of the road is awful.
And, but this really starts a concentrated effort to remove these dams on the upper basin. So the dam subject for removal are JC Boyle, um, Copco 1, Copco 2, and um, Iron Gate. So these are the four dams that have been um, determined to be adequate for removal on the Klamath Basin and were de determined to be causing the most detrimental um, environmental issues. I'm uh, Mark Dadigan. I am a third year PhD student in Native American studies at UC Davis. You know, I'm originally from Chicago area, which is Potawatomi Ojibwe homelands. Um, I'm a non-native allied scholar. The dam is all wrapped up into these frontier narratives, right? Of that this was empty wilderness, that, you know, essentially that white people had some kind of religious God ordains right to seize this land and to occupy it because they were the ones who are gonna make productive use of it. It's also a site of, I guess, settler origin story for the community. You know, it's, it's considered um, a thing of beauty to a lot of non-native people. There's just kind of this, you know, obliviousness to how the dam was essentially a weapon of cultural erasure for, in this case, the Wintu people, right? Because they were forcibly removed from their river um, through different machinations of the BIA and the Bureau of uh, Reclamation uh, to dis dispossess some of their allotment land. When the Wintu are trying to tell their story, when they're trying to explain um, why the dam shouldn't be raised again and they shouldn't be flooded out because there still hasn't been justice for what happened the first time. My name is Sheridan Noileni Inamoto. It was a vision that came to Chief Colleen Sisk after uh, actions on not raising the Shasta Dam further, another 18 feet. The Shasta Dam and the building of hydropower um, water infrastructure has had drastic, if not deadly, effects on the Winnemum went to. So much of that water, when it became a reservoir, it was covered up entire sacred sites and towns, which were villages at one point, burial sites, cemeteries had to be moved. It had really detrimental impacts for the Winnemum went to. And they wanted to raise the dam even further, which would continue that desecration of Winnemum went to lands. That led to a vision of doing a war dance on the Shasta Dam and bringing awareness about what was happening that, you know, 18 feet is too much. We believe, you know, that the salmon are water keepers. They are climate changers. They are essential to all water in California, that they are essential to the cleaning of the riverbeds to keep the water clean for everything that drinks it. And so we uh, began this prayer journey. Um, and, and when we began, we started from the ocean, like when the adult salmon come in and followed it all the way up to the McLeod River and asking one, for the salmon to take a different path. So this prayer is one that, you know, we are asking a whole lot of different folks. We have a lot of young people that are coming out on the run for salmon. We have some older folks that are uh, tired of the way things have gone and that this is like uh, uh, 
some hope for change. And we've been doing it for six years. And, uh, you know, I think more and more people are hearing about it. More and more people are agreeing that, you know, maybe the, you know, the Department of Water Resources or the State Water Board or the ag business farms are not making the best choices for water distribution in California. And so, you know, we're hoping to sit down at the table with them. But, you know, they have this other list of uh, recognized tribes, and somehow they failed to put us on that list. And it's probably because our tribe sits right on Shasta Lake, which is thought to be, you know, the the um, the dam that brought the empire to California. But the fact is, we've always been there. We're still there. Even though they blocked us out as they did the salmon, we still return to our sacred places and we still sing to the water and dance there. And I don't think the United States knows what to do with us. In case of the Winnemum, the tribe can say, hey, this Shasta Dam, it's going to flood or damage 40 of our sacred sites. It's essentially going to end our Bachlas Chonas, our coming of age ceremony for young women, which is the ceremony that, you know, you know, you don't, shouldn't need Western science to confirm this, but Western science confirms, you know, the, these ceremonies, uh, you know, reduce suicide rates, they improve community health in all these ways. Uh, they're just important ceremonies for weaving the fabric of the tribe together. They're, they're part of the recovery from genocide, right? They're an important part of recovery from genocide. And the tribe can say this, this project is going to um, curtail or end these ceremonies. Um, and the agencies can just say, well, sorry, um, we still are going to do it anyway. You know, in terms of, you know, I've been following the proposal to raise Shasta Dam for a long time. And I've been following, you know, the, the proposal to first uh, pr uh, build two Delta tunnels and now a single Delta tunnel, which is going to pump uh, more water out of the San Joaquin, Sacramento Delta down south. And, um, you know, for, for salmon people, the, the Delta is really important um, place for, for young salmon and migrating salmon. And, it's, and the salmon populations in California are really dependent on a healthy Delta, as are, as are humans, actually, for in terms of uh, the water quality. And that's something Chief Sisk and others can speak to in much better detail. These land management departments have tried to keep Native people off their lands through the settler colonial laws about land management and fishing and what is best for the environment. And it's often pushing Native people away from their traditions and, and life ways. We've been um, fighting back against settler colonialism for a very long time. In this second part, you have heard from Chief Callian Sis, Brittany Arona, Ron Reed, Beth Rose Middleton Manning, Sheridan Inomoto, Mark Dadigan, and Craig Tucker. So we're all really connected in these water fights um, because it impacts us um, and it impacts Native people. And so almost as soon as colonization starts, there's this effort to try to control it. So you see the levee systems come up, you see um, the different water projects, the drainings of lakes. 
Chinook salmon are, they thrived and survived, right? They're ready to be returned back home. So we went to all those meetings and we kept saying the same thing. Take the concrete out. Let the water flow naturally. That's not how we think. We don't think in those capitalistic, those neoliberal, those settler <laughs> colonial terms. Welcome to part three, Indigenous Self-Determination. There's the Central Valley Project, which is federally run, and then there's the State Water, Water Project, which is state run. But, you know, the State Water Project has, and the Delta Conveyance, has really threatened the way in which the Delta um, looks and how it continues to be. So the Delta used to be I'm in, I'm based in Sacramento and Nissan and Miwok territories. And the way that um, Miwok and my do friends of mine describe it is that this area was like a marshland, essentially, right? Like it's wet um, in the winter months and it provides a lot of um, fisheries and fowl and um, different animal life and like really sustained these people in this area and throughout the Central Valley. So it goes all the way down to the Central Valley when I was talking about those lakes, um, really sustains native people in the Central Valley regions. Um, and then it has like this cyclical cycle, right? And so the Delta goes out into the Bay. And so there's this like huge marshland and beautiful place in, in the state. And so almost as soon as colonization starts, there's this effort to try to control it. So you see the levee systems come up, um, you see um, the different water projects, the drainings of lakes, uh, Tulare Lake is drained for agricultural purposes. And so the agriculture in California is really based in this drainage of this marshland area. Um, and so the Delta conveyance project is really the two tunnels and it's a way of making water deliveries into Southern California um, and different regions and basically sucking this area dry for lack of a better term. But all of these waterways end up connecting. The Trinity River diverts down into these projects. So the Trinity River diverts to the Central Valley project. Um, and so our waters in intermingle with um, Central Valley waters to be delivered to Southern California and agricultural interest. The current system of dams that we have, especially the older dams, many of them were built with no attention to indigenous peoples, indigenous lifeways, indigenous rights, or ecosystems, in-stream flows, um, and species health. So that right there is a foundational problem. Because I'm not necessarily saying that hydropower is always bad or that all dams are bad, but the way dams have been constructed and managed, I think is, is really problematic. And so that itself is a foundational issue. I mean, I think maybe it could be studied whether or not you could build some sort of a dam in order to generate hydropower or to hold water for drier times of year in a way that still allowed for fish passage, uh, for other species migration, for flows to sustain a whole range of riverine species. 
including human beings. So I think those questions were never asked. Um, right now I'm looking at a dam in Alaska and when it was established, it was just, it was okay to completely dewater the river. So there's actually no flow in the river. And there's a process now to try to restore that and address that issue. But I think it's an extreme case of the fact that like the inputs to the studies that called for putting in these dams and the engineers that designed them, they really had paid no attention at all to indigenous peoples, indigenous homelands, and to ecosystems. Also, the system as a whole is really unsustainable in terms of this mass development of urban spaces in areas without a lot of water. So that's also something to consider. This history of land theft, land seizure for the development of these hydro projects to facilitate the growth of urban areas downstream, you know, really on the backs of indigenous peoples at the headwaters. Very, uh, really painful to go through, to go through all of these files and recognize that so few people knew about this history in the area where I grew up in broadly in the, in the Sierra foothills and mountains. So, in that project, just documenting what happened to these lands, the flooding of those lands, and then, you know, putting it front and center that many people, especially, um, for example, looking at Mountain Maidu, didn't have a collective land base. There was no recognized land that ever transferred to them to address the non-ratification of treaties or the seizure and flooding of their lands for these hydro projects. So really putting that front and center and saying, what do we, what can we do about it now? And there happened to be this process, this settlement between California Public Utilities Commission and Pacific Gas and Electric following PG&E's bankruptcy proceedings back in the early 2000s. And they settled and agreed on this structure by which PG&E would put into conservation ownership and or divest itself of 140,000 acres of lands that were non-essential for the production of hydropower. But these are directly the lands that were taken from our ancestors 100 years ago. And why are we not part of the process or at least at the table in determining what's going to happen to these lands? So this advocacy reverberated, I think, from different tribes around the state with the same central issue of their homelands being given away again without any recognition um, or consideration of transferring it back to tribal people. So the Maidu Summit was successful in, in advocating for lands and at least, let's see, 3,500 acres in Tasmam Koyam was transferred and then there are other parcels around what is now known as Lake Almanor or Big Meadows that were also transferred or in the process of being transferred. So, so that's some of the, the history with the flooding of allotment lands and the advocacy for the recognition of that context. Today with the dams, it's really difficult to maintain like cultural life ways and healthy river systems and you know and healthy environment with the dams in place um you know salmon can't do their runs um, because of the drought and because of water mismanagement this year we had a fish kill of juvenile salmon and while juvenile salmon is not as visible as adult Chinook salmon and coho salmon, that's a whole generation lost, which is devastating. 
And a lot of people that I know, I mean, myself included, I mean, I get emotional about it because it's very, it's, it's, you know, you try for so long and so you work so hard and you hope for things so much that, that the government or corporations or something will be like, yeah, we'll, we'll get rid of these dams um, because it's destroying our culture. But over time, you kind of just realize how little that matters in the world that we're living in that doesn't prioritize reciprocity or life, really. I mean, not to sound cynical or, but the world that we live in is not one that prioritizes those things. It's all about making money. It's capitalism. It's um, globalization. It's all that, how are we going to get these products out to the world? Like, how are we going to do this? And that means that Native people suffer and have their lands dispossessed, from, continuously dispossessed from them, um, have their waters taken. Um, and I think to make a better world <laughs> is to, you know, give land back to Native peoples. When we say that, people are like, well, why do I have to give my land? <laughs> and it's like, for something, you don't even own land. 45% of the lands in California are owned by the federal government. So you're not losing anything by having those lands given back. And land back doesn't mean that non-Native people are going to be kicked out. Um, that's not within our spirit of reciprocity. That's not how we think. We don't think in those capitalistic, those neoliberal, those <laughs> settler colonial terms, like people aren't gonna be kicked out. It's really a reciprocal relationship that we're trying to build with other people too. It's like, hey, come join us. Come learn about cultural burning. Come learn about how salmon species are essential to your river system and why that matters. I see a lot of that and hopefulness in that realm. Obviously, with the dams removed, it'll be great. And hopefully our rivers will be thriving. But it won't be the end of these discussions. Then it's on to, you know, how do we continue to do water restoration in this area that has been plagued by mining? and mercury and is still dealing with section dredge mining which is really bad um, for the river system so we're also continuously trying to solve these problems that settler colonialism has created and again it goes back to people think that things are in the past like hydroelectric mining is, the, is in the past that still affects our environment today and it really matters. And abandoned mine lands really affect our environment today. If you know about watersheds and how we get our water, which we don't, um, but we need to start changing that. And we need to, I, I, my dream is if I ask anybody on the street at any age, if I ask you where your water comes from, they should be able to tell me that it doesn't just come from my, my tap, it doesn't just come from my faucet, it doesn't just come from my, you know, um, fountain in my house, but really telling me like, no, my rivers are this, my waters are this. Um, I know where my mountains are, where we get our snow, rainfall, and where a lot of our fresh water begins. It's mountains. Sports fishers in Aotearoa or New Zealand heard about what was happening 
and I actually contacted the tribe and said, you know what, we actually have your salmon that you believe could be gone. They still exist. They're still thriving. They're existing in our watershed, very similar to the ones that we would find in Shasta and the Winnemum. Um, and I say Winnemum, Wayaket, or Winnemum, which is also known as the McLeod River. Um, the Winnemum are named. They are the middle water people. So to know that in a place in the Pacific, in Oceania, in Aotearoa, in the South Pacific, that Chinook salmon, are, they thrived and survived, right? They're ready to be returned back home. It was amazing. And, and the film Dancing the Salmon Home really, really uh, documents that journey of the Winnema went to seeing their salmon and their trip to Aotearoa. Mi hija ne hinkam ne tuanya ne tina ko mikrabet na ha tongve ko mikskanakan ko yueme. Hello, my relatives. My name is Tina Calderon. I am Gabrielino Tongva, Ventureño Chumash, and yueme. As I start seeing the movement of taking down these dams, um, we're talking about revitalizing the LA River too. Um, unfortunately, they they very reluctantly wanted to hear the native's perspective on it. They went um, for the LA River, they went um, you know, to every neighborhood asking what would you like to see along the river, never taking into account that there was originally a native village in that area. What would we like to see? Um, but we inserted ourselves, we went to all those meetings and we kept saying the same thing, take the concrete out, let the water flow naturally. Part of the colonizer's perspective um, was not only the greed, but also about control. Control of the peoples, control of the plants, control of the waters. And so when we start thinking about the dams, like our LA River that's been concreted, for me, that's about controlling that relative, that water who has a spirit and wants to flow. And they say it's because, you know, there's homes now built all along the river and if that water expands, which it has many times, um, it'll wipe out those homes. But why didn't we think of not putting our homes so close to the river? Why didn't we respect that river and know that although we always lived amongst the water sources, along the water sources, we were never on top of it. You know, we always gave it that space. We knew that it had, a, it had a spirit of its own and there would be times that it would swell and there would be times that it would be very little water. So we know that this system isn't working. Uh, it's time now. It's time to go back to those original teachings and let the water flow. That we need to survive. Kati Joe Calderon. I represent Chumash and Tongva and Chicano. And I'm from Chatsworth. You know, here we are in, in, in the Los Angeles area, Los Angeles County, and um, before the coming of the Spaniards, there was a lot of uh, estuaries, a lot of rivers, a lot of streams that came from the mountains. And as my wife said, you know, nobody ever built the villages right next to the rivers because, you know, that's how you pollute your river. That's how you pollute your water, is by being right on top of it, right, right next to it. You know, the geologists would, will always say, you know, this was such a perfect environment before, before the Europeans came. So during, during those ancient times, the Lancaster area was almost like the plains, the Great Plains. 
you know, except for they, these were the upper plains of our area, which connected that area, Lancaster, going into Arizona and going into the Vegas area. You know, so thousands of years ago, when there was water in those areas, animals would migrate through there. So we had the upper plains in Lancaster where the animals would migrate and they would go through an area and end up in what is now called Bakersfield. So um, in the areas that we've dug up, the village sites were always alongside the mountains and uh, nowhere near the waters. <clears throat> but then, you know, we come into uh, the era where this became Los Angeles and Mulholland went up into that area, into the Lancaster area and drained the water from that area to build up Los Angeles. Because um, the water in Los Angeles is what they were using to drink. Uh, La Placita in Los Angeles, if you ever, if you ever walk through that little plaza, you'll see that when you're walking through that, that uh, brick, brick street, brick road there, there's water that's coming up through them bricks. You know, and that's the, that's the ancient stream that used to run through there. You know, that its memory is still there and it still comes up, you know, but what did, what did the people of Los Angeles do? They wanted to cut it and dam it up so they can build a city there. Same here in San Fernando. We had areas that were, um, um, what are they called? Hot springs. And Department of Water and Power blew up those hot springs to close them down. You know, they did the same thing in Lake Los Angeles. If you if you've ever been to Lake Los Angeles, it's not a lake. At one time there was a lot of water coming out there, but Department of Water and Power went there and blew that system up to close it down. You know, we're we're in a semi-desert and greed has caused overbuilding here. And um the water that we get is from the Owens Valley. It's not our water. It belongs to a tribe up there and we're taking their water forcibly. And um, today, if you look into that, to that lake, it's drying up. So once that water is gone, what are we gonna do? You know, we're overpopulated and we're still building more and more homes. And if you've ever seen homes being built, you have these big water trucks that they have that are spraying water all over the place every single day and refilling those trucks up, you know, and, and we're losing our water. We're, you know, we're depleting Mother Earth of her blood, you know, what keeps us alive. Well, they have a solution for that too, right? They say um, good after bad, <laughs> it's bad after good, I don't know, because now they want to take from our ocean and they want to do desalination plants. So if we're not controlling this water, let's go control that water. None of this is the perfect solution. Also, the water system that we have now isn't that old. <laughs> the 1960s wasn't that long ago. And that's kind of when it starts. Um, it's within the realm of lifetimes for people my dad was born in 1961. Like, you know, it's not, the, we tend to think of these things as something that 
has always been here. And that's just not true. Um, and so it requires creative solutions beyond doing the status quo. And I don't have anything against farmers, um, but I would like to see more creative solutions that move away from capitalist concerns. I think we have to remember the the racism that was inherent in scientific decision making for so much of our history. You know, indigenous voices were not heard, not listened to, not invited. There was no process of free prior and informed consent. There was no no opportunity created for thinking about other worldviews or ways of relating to a place or living in a place. But I just think as kind of mainstream science understands more about the impacts to the environment, to the ecology, to river systems of dams, that it becomes becomes easier to advocate for their removal. And it mirrors a lot of what tribes have been saying for a long time, that the dams are harmful, that they're impacting entire systems, that they're uh, you know, hampering people's ability to carry out traditional instructions and, and to follow their, their traditional responsibilities and life ways in these places. So I feel like in many cases, those feelings both from the indigenous aspect and environmental aspect are coming together to support dam removals. Without salmon, you're not gonna be physically nourished. You're not gonna be mentally nourished. Now, I have to go out and search into unfamiliar grounds for my world ideology. The modern society called the United States of America does not understand it's because of the erasure that has happened and has continued to happen today. The Kudu tribe is the second largest tribe in California with, over, with approximately 3,600 tribal members. We caught less than 50 fish last year. A million fish returning to this Klamath River Basin and now it's less than 5%. What kind of food replaced that salmon? It is dangerous and it has such a huge impact. And we have to wake up to what is happening. You'll go to these sections of the river and all of a sudden it looks, it's a river like water like disappears. And it's not really gone. It's just being funneled in these huge pipeline or water line tubes coming off the mountain, covered up, hiding, right? But it's so, um, what's around it, it just seems so dead. And you really see it. And then you can't help but think, Wow, when the fire, you know, and the dry brush, and then like, oh, I wonder why the fires just sort of devastated the area because it was so easy. Um, the life of the water that brings to these areas um, when they're freed, man, it's so great and also prevents the devastation of wildfire fires even going even more so. And I learned a lot from Chief Kalinsis too around the relationship with fire and water in the Winnemum. So all of these. Lifeways, indigenous lifeways, teachings. Uh, for me personally, specifically from Chief Kelly Zisk and the one I went to, have really been my um, guide in the work that I do and continue to do. And I personally strive to be in alignment with that and do my best in that. You have been listening to Challenging Colonialism. In this third part of our series on dams as weapons of mass destruction, 
you have heard from Brittany Arona, Ron Reed, Beth Rose Middleton Manning, Sheridan Inamoto, and Tina and Joe Calderon. Yes, we're out here, you know, like engaging in environmental science, but also we're engaging in our culture. We're engaging in traditions, knowledge systems that have been in place since forever. Every native person needs water. Every person, native or non-native, needs water. And that's what kind of led me to this research and why it's so important, I think, to listen to indigenous people about water rights, water resources, because we're the original environmentalists of this land. It's just like when we think about what colonization really stood for, it was the purposeful erasure of native peoples and, and their cultures. So to be able to bring that ceremony back is kind of like the ultimate resistance against that. We conclude our four-part series on dam removals with the currently unfolding story from our local watershed. This podcast is produced in Santa Cruz, California, which is the ancestral home of the Awaswa-speaking Ohlone peoples. Today, these lands are tended by their closest relatives, the Amamutsan tribal band. Part four, The Salmon Return, focuses on the removal of the Mill Creek Dam, which was accomplished in 2020 by a coalition of the Amamutsan Land Trust, sometime mentioned in this episode as the AMLT, UCLA's Center for Diverse Leadership in Science, called CDLS in this episode, the Semper Virens Fund, who arranged for the purchase and preservation of the land, and the Amamutsan tribal band themselves. The land of Mill Creek occupies the unceded lands of the Uipi tribe of the Waswa-speaking Ohlone peoples, part of a larger indigenous homeland known as Popeleochum. This land is cared for today by the Amamutsan tribal band. We'll hear from Carolyn Rodriguez, Stephen Pratt, Elijah Catalan and Mike Crone as they discuss the removal of the Mill Creek Dam and the work being done to survey the creek's response to the removal. In Mill Creek, salmon were observed upstream within a few months of the removal, and we'll also hear about a recent Amamutsan ceremony and its impact on participants. And we're also pleased to share the voice of Lakota graduate student Josh Little giving additional context to indigenous relationships to water in the Western United States. So hello, I'm Carolyn Rodriguez. I am an Amla Mudson tribal member. Um, currently, I'm a PhD student at UCLA um, in education, social research methodology. So I'm a second year PhD student. Um, before that, I got my master's at UCLA in American Indian Studies. So the Mill Creek Dam um, in the Santa Cruz Mountains, this specific creek is where um, the salmon in the area would basically swim upstream. Part of the creek, there's been like a dam that's been blocking the salmon from moving forward. Mainly for the creek itself, it's, it's an important lifeway for the salmon and how like our ancestors, those living in the Santa Cruz Mountain, like they had access to that creek. And so they you know, would take care of the salmon and like take care of the water. At UCLA, um, there's the Center for Diverse Leadership in Science. Val had mentioned it to me that, you know, there's people at UCLA and that we're thinking of collaborating and like having them support the Amamutsan Land Trust. 
for my research study also, like I was kind of, I'm interested in not only participating to support the, like within the project itself, but also I was like looking at partnerships and how like we can collaborate together. I feel like that's kind of what I focus on is basically how CDLS, how they formed this partnership with the tribe. My name is Elijah Catalan. I'm a second year PhD student in the Institute of Environment and Sustainability at UCLA. Um, I'm also an early career fellow with the Center for Diverse Leadership in Science, which is partnering with the Amundsen Land Trust to um, build a model for um, community engagement and partnership in um, environmental monitoring and science. And what my main research focus is, is using environmental DNA to monitor um, ecological restoration in coastal habitats, as well as partnering in that with community members and indigenous tribes. We've been working with the Amundsen Land Trust for about a year now, um, but the, the relationship is still very nascent. So that's kind of how I came into UCLA was the relationship was just starting and we we're um, trying to develop different research projects or collab- collaborative projects that we could work on together. And so we had had been meeting for a while and then um, some of the tribal members had described this uh, dam that was set to be removed as a part of ecological restoration. My name is Mike Brown. I'm currently the Associate State Archaeologist of the Santa Cruz State Parks District. And prior to that, I was working with the Amamitsan Land Trust in a variety of capacities. I'm an archaeologist by training. I did my dissertation at UC Berkeley working with the Land Trust doing a collaborative historical ecological research project on the Santa Cruz coast. So we did the cultural resource surveys in the at the late spring of 2021. We did some environmental DNA collection, I think late summer, prior to the dam being removed. And then the dam was removed sometime in early October. And then after that, we've gone back and done additional sampling, the same locations that we took prior samples. And we're actually gearing up to do another round of sampling in the next couple weeks here. My experience participating in this was uh, one of tremendous learning. You know, as an archaeologist, I've worked with the tribe. I've worked with other tribes in California in in most depth with the Amamotsin. And there has been this push to extend and expand their stewardship of cultural and natural resources to the sea, to marine resources, to shoreline resources. And this is like a huge stepping stone and tangible thing, like tangible, visible outcome of participating and leading those stewardship efforts. How Josh Thunder Little Machiapolo. Hey, everyone. My name is Josh Thunder Little. Uh, Currently, I'm a graduate student or PhD student in history at University of California, Riverside. I also did my undergrad at UCR, a double major in history and Native American studies. Uh, continued on the state of the graduate school and work on Lakota water sovereignty. So on my dad's side, I'm Oglala Lakota and also Gabrielino. That's uh, my grandma was Gabrielino, and then my grandfather was from Pine Ridge. He was Lakota. And then on my mom's side, I'm also Mexican and white. I uh, grew up in Palm Springs, California, on the Agua Caliente Band of Cahuilla Indians Reservation. Uh, my grandma's first husband was from Agua Caliente, so that's why I grew up in California. 
growing up out here, I do know a few things on the West Coast. Um, just to mention, I know there's a water rights case with the Agua Caliente Bandicui Indians. It wasn't so much of a dam, but the depletion of the water in the aquifer that is over in the Palm Springs area. And there's been some, you know, recent uh, water rights case and the, was it Coachella Valley Water District that the tribe was, you know, taking the court and working within. Can't speak too much on that. I know there's a few tribal members. Uh, my sister listened to uh, one tribal member, uh, my sister Jade. She was at UC Davis, and it was, I believe, Moreno Potencio who had tuned in on her class and spoke a little bit about that. And then I was just looking up the other day about the Winnemawintu and how they are experiencing issues with dams in relation to salmon, and they're unable to, you know, keeping with the traditions of their food and the abundance of their lifestyle. Has they already done, you know, prior to United States um, contact. And then also more up directly in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, my brother currently lives in Portland and was at the Columbia River and also the damming up there, which then impacted also the salmon and which is their, you know, food life's uh, resources that they've been practicing, you know, since time immemorial. So these issues of water, um, it's not amongst all tribes, but there's a lot of parallels that can be drawn. But I think one big overarching similarity that can be said is that it's our way of life. It's intricate and it's tied into our ceremonies and it's tied into how we sustain our diets as Native people. Every Native person needs water. Every person, Native or non-Native, needs water. And that's what kind of led me to this research and why it's so important. I think to listen to indigenous people about water rights, water resources, because we're the original environmentalists of this land. Mill Creek Dam project for me was uh, a very exciting and interesting project to be involved in, both the dam removal, uh, the environmental DNA sampling that I'll talk a little bit more about, uh, that, that the land trust and uh, some members of a lab at UCLA conducted, along with some integrative cultural resource survey done prior to the removal of the dam. It's really exciting to, as an archaeologist to be involved in this integrative project, very applied, contemporary relevance. Working as the manager of the Coastal Stewardship Program, we were developing a number of different monitoring projects along the coast from San Mateo all the way down to Monterey, kind of just restore a combination of native stewardship and also access of tribal people to a lot of these coastal places. So we got involved with the Mill Creek Dam through Semper Virens, and we were working collaboratively with CLA and the Land Trust. My understanding of the dam was that, you know, like other dams in the area, it was introduced in the early 1900s and kind of went defunct after the, the mining became defunct. And it sat there blocking the waterway and collecting a lot of sediment especially relevant for thinking about things like salmon restoration. You know, salmon require open rivers to, to migrate upstream and spawn. Um, that tributary, Mill uh, Creek, that feeds into San Vicente Creek is especially important in that it provides really cold water almost year-round because it's fed by this underground limestone karst system. Dams, they change the habitat very, very uh, drastic. Um, a lot of sediment will be trapped behind the dam. And then um, salmon, since they go out to the ocean every year and then come back, uh, the dam serves as a barrier for their movement and it um, limits their range and, and their natural habitat. And they also, since the water isn't flowing anymore, it tends to heat up. Um, so we heard about the dam being set to be removed. We thought it would be a good 
first project for us to teach them environmental DNA. And since they were going to be monitoring habitat anyway, um, using their cultural monitoring surveys, uh, we could collaborate and compare our results um, and teach each other these methods through looking at this project by seeing it, whether the salmon and the fish communities changed after the dam was removed. Uh, there are kind of countless different ways that, that dams impact watersheds. You know, you could think all the way downstream to when rivers meet the ocean and they provide this abundance of nutrients. Salmon, which are an anadromous fish, meaning they go from freshwater to saltwater back to freshwater, back to the same stream they were born. And if, they're, if that area is dammed, they can't get past that dam and and spawn. And they're generally when salmon return home to spawn, they die afterwards. And all of the nutrients in their bodies that have been collected from the sea, from all the time they spent at sea feeding, are released back into that creek, which feed the root networks of trees. And so it disrupts a, a traditional cultural practice of uh, you know, harvesting salmon during salmon runs. And so it disrupts all these these natural cycles. And also it disrupts the not just uh, people's relationships to salmon as a food source, but in my understanding, working with the, the tribal band, it, their, their cer- kind of ceremonial relationships and deeper ties to land and sea, that's disrupted as well in the disruption of salmon being able to move freely and rivers being able to flow freely. We were working with uh, this lab at UCLA, the specialty of this lab, which is environmental DNA sampling. The grad student doing most of the work was Elijah Catalan, and they came and joined us on a couple separate occasions, and I think they're going to continue to take environmental DNA samples at Mill Creek. So we took bagged water in these sterile bags and that water is then processed through a filter. And just like, you know, humans shed hair and skin, animals and any organism in an environment is shedding DNA. And in watersheds, that DNA can be collected in a water sample. And it can give you a sort of sense of presence absence of whether a certain species has been in that watershed. So we took samples, a couple samples above the dam prior to it being removed, a couple more samples below the dam, we took another set of samples out at the river mouth where, you know, below where Mill Creek meets San Vicente all the way out at the Pacific Ocean. And that gave us a sense prior to the dam removal of what the extent of coho and steelhead populations were in the, in the creek so that we could have a baseline once the dam was removed to go back and do additional sampling and see if coho and or steelhead have extended their range further up Mill Creek beyond where the, the dam was uh, previous. If, if the removal of the dam basically uh, was effective at opening up this corridor for, for salmon to migrate further up the creek. I think this is like super important with biodiversity science and ecological monitoring, especially with indigenous tribes, because it's some large number like um, 80 or 90 percent of biodiversity is on uh, indigenous lands. So it's, it's really important for them to kind of take the lead, especially with their um, ways of knowing that are much older and much more ingrained in their environments to um, have them involved with, with the monitoring of these habitats. I'm still a young scientist, so I've been learning kind of these methods um, as I've been working on this project as well.
we don't we don't know what the um, fish communities are based on the eDNA samples yet. Um, but concurrently, the um, landowners, Sempervirens, as well as the Ombudsman um, with their land trust have been uh, doing monitoring surveys. So we can tell kind of how the um, environment has changed and what they've been observing so far to give us kind of a preliminary idea before we actually sequence the um, eDNA samples, which we'll start doing this winter. When we first started monitoring the site was April of this year and the actual dam site after looking at it this past week has actually changed uh, a whole lot there were like big pools of water um and there was a ton of sediment trapped behind the dam before um but now that's all gone and it's kind of cleared away to this um new kind of gravel habitat which is really good for um salmon spawning sempervirens is, is since they're in charge of the actual dam removal they've actually observed some salmon past where the Mill Creek Dam used to be for the first time, which is really exciting. We weren't really sure what the timeline would be of the recovery of the river. Um, and it's very variable and it can like a bunch of factors can influence the salmon returning and what the fish communities look like. So we really had no idea what time scale they would they would come back. So it's really heartening to hear that they are past um, the dam. And I hope that the, the EDNA results reflect that. Um, for example, um, we're learning a lot with environmental DNA. So eDNA, basically um, CDLS is teaching us how to collect water samples. And so it's like we have this method of collecting water samples, extracting the DNA, which the DNA tells us the story of the water, its health, which then impacts the life ways for the salmon. And so we basically came together where it was like CDLS was like, okay, we're here to support you. We're here to teach you what we know, but we also want you to have your own agency to where you're leading the project and you're pushing things forward. And so that's when we kind of started working with the Mill Creek and, and then the dam removal. Having access to more information, you know, kind of linking traditional resource management, traditional indigenous knowledge and ecological knowledge with modern ecological science and seeing how they can they can benefit each other, they can improve each other and uh, affirm one another in many ways, I think is a, is a true victory of this whole integrative approach to this dam removal. Yes, we're out here, you know, like engaging in environmental science, but also we're engaging in our culture, we're engaging in traditions, knowledge systems that have been in place since forever. And so it's like, we're, we're, in a space to where we're prioritizing indigenous knowledge, utilizing current research methods, and basically creating research, you know, knowledge from this study that is going to be benefited, like it's going to benefit the tribe, and it's going to benefit like our um, relation with the water, with the creek, with the salmon. For me, you know, as a young adult, and like there's elders and like other people that are older than me, like my family members that are you know, we're barely learning about the salmon migration process. And we're barely learning about like salmon ceremonies that are how our ancestors prayed and take care of the salmons. And so for us, we're bringing back these traditions. And we're basically, you know, like, that's feel like that's kind of my goal with the study is to 
while we do this knowledge, I mean, do this research, create this knowledge that the knowledge gets back to the community. And to me, that's my own like personal concern because I want to make sure that, you know, future gener that this knowledge is going to be there for future generations and that we're going to continue on with our like spirituality of protecting the land, water, the salmon, since I feel like that at the end of the day is what we're striving for. And I would say the CDLS collaborators, like they're well aware of how important this work is to us. Like they, I can see it myself, just how they themselves are also like can have this connection to taking care of the land and supporting us and being a good ally. That's why I felt like this project is just amazing. The support that AMLT is getting and it's just, I feel like it's just the beginning of like future work that can be done that at the end of the day support the tribe. My name is Stephen Pratt. I'm a member of the Amamutsun Tribal Band, and I'm also a steward with the Amamutsun Land Trust. I've been a steward since uh, about 2018, and I'm currently inactive because I am a student at Cabrillo College. I'm studying environmental science and focusing in marine science, and I plan to utilize this knowledge that I'm working on to bring it back to the tribe to work on our coastal stewardship program. In November of 2021, I joined my tribe, the Amamutsun Travel Band, in a salmon ceremony. This was in response to the removal of the dam in Mill Creek to invite the salmon back to Mill Creek. I, I really got hit hard emotionally just after the ceremony, after doing the dance. And it, it was a lot of weight that I felt. It was really heavy for me. I had to take time away from everyone and just take like 15 minutes to myself just to take in what had happened on its own uh, before even intellectually thinking about the purpose of it. it. It brought up a lot of emotion for me. The reason why I was feeling all that, looking back on it, is because it's, we haven't had that ceremony in so long. And so to be a part of that, I think, is huge because it really shows how far we've come since colonization. It's just like when we think about what colonization really stood for, it was the purposeful erasure of Native peoples and, and their cultures. So to be able to bring that ceremony back is kind of like the ultimate resistance against that. It's just like, you, you know, it may have taken 200 years, but to be able to come back, I mean, even after that amount of time, and say, no, we're still here, and we're going to practice our ceremony. So the salmon ceremony took place in November, this past November 2021. The day in itself, the tribal members had to, to travel. So, so the day of, it really is like all the tribal members arriving to the Santa Cruz area, arriving to the site where we were going to have the salmon ceremony, taking the time to be in community, and then taking the time to have ceremony. So when I say, oh, I've been learning about this from an academic lens, or I've been talking about these things, it was very much like, I knew the importance of ceremony. I knew the importance of tribal members coming together to, you know, pray for, or, you know, seek guidance from creator. We would pray to our ancestors. And so I knew like, the importance of having a ceremony and how we were able, like how that was our way of connecting to our ancestors, connecting to creator and basically praying for the well-being. So whether that meant 
the land, the water, praying for the salmon. And so when I learned that we were going to have a salmon ceremony, then I was like, I still get emotional, but like, it just to me was like, okay, like I've been thinking about this. I've been talking about this and now I'm actually going to do it. This work, it is connected to our spirituality and to our, um, you know, our responsibility to take care of our land and everything. And so it just felt like an amazing feeling. Like, I know I'm crying, but it's like, I'm, it's not tears of sadness. It's like tears of like happiness because I feel connected to my ancestors, to my community, and also to like the salmon. And so I participated in the ceremony. I danced. That was my first time dancing. And that was my first time participating in any type of ceremony like that. So for me, it was like a new beginning and uh, to basically practice my cultural traditions, but at the same time to pray for the salmon and to basically just pray for everything that I'm doing. <laughs> that makes sense because like, I, you know, I'm doing, I have a, I'm doing like, I'm asserting and talking about certain things when it's like, oh, researchers need to do this and the institution needs to do that. But at the same time, like I'm still like in my own path and my own journey connecting and upholding my own like sacred responsibility. I just like, I'm just get emotional when I um, open up with my, and talk about my spirituality. And at the end of the day, it was an amazing experience. I think it was even more amazing. And I get more emotional because I know that, I know that the ceremony hadn't happened since like colonization, since contact with Europeans. And so to know that um, I was a part of this group, this, you know, this circle, this ceremony to basically be a part of this ceremony just made me feel like honored. It made me feel like honored and like, like it was a great honor to be there, to represent my community, to engage in ceremony, but it was also like a blessing it was the, the first salmon ceremony that they've had since the European colonists came, which is like incredible to be able to witness that. And it's like an incredible honor to be invited to that. So it, it really motivates me to um, keep working with them and, and do this kind of science because it's impactful. It helps these tribes um, be in connection with their environments the way they used to be um, and build even stronger connections as uh, people. And I feel like that's something that scientists shouldn't just look over, but should incorporate into their work more often. It felt beautiful to be there and to like pray for my community and for our future, but also like praying for the salmon and I felt like the ceremony was just amazing because it was, yes, we were called there to have ceremony to pray for the health of the salmon, but yet we were also praying for like our future and the health of the tribe. And like, and by that, I mean like our survival, our well-being. This is already embedded in our teachings drawing from the intellectual traditions of all my ancestors, all my relatives who have thought of these things before me. These aren't my ideas. It's just something that makes sense. So I want to be able to share that with non-native peoples and also help my community at the same time. Water is a relative. It's a living thing and 
you know, often the United States treats it as a commodity, something that's not has life, but water does have life because it gives us life. You've been listening to Challenging Colonialism. The voices in this episode's closing part were Carolyn Rodriguez, Amamutsin, Elijah Catalan, Mike Groan, Josh Thunder Little, Oglala Lakota, and Stephen Pratt, Amamutsin. All interviews were conducted and recorded by Martin Rizzo Martinez. Audio engineering and editing by myself, Daniel Stonebloom. Music was written and performed by G. Gonzalez. The sounds of Mill Creek flowing after the dam removal were recorded and shared by Carolyn Rodriguez. Challenging Colonialism is produced with support from the California State Parks Foundation. Check back for episode four, where we'll illuminate the legacy of Indian boarding schools in California. On a final note, the podcast is now available on many more platforms and podcast directories. Please share widely and consider leaving a review or rating of this podcast on your preferred streaming service.